This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Three months ago, Vladimir Putin appointed a new general to oversee his war in Ukraine. Apparently, he wasn't pleased with his results, so on Wednesday, he promoted another new general. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, we're now on day 322 of Russia's disastrous invasion of Ukraine, and General Sergei Sorovikin has been removed as commander of Russian forces in the war. And now, Valery Gerasimov is the new overall commander of the war. So this is a, uh, it's a significant shakeup. Sorovikin is a man who we had called quite a lot of attention to on Trumpet Hour when he was appointed a couple of months ago. We spoke at that time about how Sorovikin had, you know, years earlier earned the nickname General Armageddon from his just ruthless and total war kind of conquests in places like Chechnya and Syria. And we, along with, I think, most Russia watchers, thought that his appointment as overall commander of Russian forces would mark a pretty big turning point for Russia and help Russia to achieve some of the kinds of victories over Ukrainian forces that have been so elusive for them so far. That was the expectation. But instead, under Sorovakin, it was mostly just more of the same. There was the big retreat from Kherson. That was a, uh, a major humiliation for Russia, especially since it came just uh, days after Putin had claimed that Kherson was suddenly an official part of Russia. There was also the Makiivka strike that we spoke about last week that killed you know hundreds of Russians in a single blow. That was just a catastrophic blow to Russia. There was also the general failure to move the line in Bakhmut. So Sorovakin did not live up to the hype, and now he has been demoted to one of three what you could call kind of um, tier two generals who now report to Valery Gerasimov. And Gerasimov is now the fourth man to be given overall command of the war effort. So uh, what do we know about this man and what can we expect to happen under Gerasimov's leadership? Yeah, well, he is a, a familiar name for criminologists. He's been the chief of the general staff of Russia since 2012. He's a highly competent senior general who is uh, famous for his, his eponymous Gerasimov doctrine. That combines military strategy with economic and information tactics and all kinds of other factors to, to achieve you know, strategic national goals. We also know that he was one of the small number of hawks who helped Vladimir Putin decide to even wage this invasion of Ukraine last year. Um, he actually ended up taking quite a lot of personal blame for the failure to take Kiev and the retreat from that area, because all of that was attempted, apparently, according to Gerasimov's plan and doctrine. Um, now, there is some disagreement right now 
among Russia watchers about the current state of Gerasimov's relationship with Putin. Some are convinced that he's kind of fallen out of favor and that he is about to be sacked. Others have put evidence together to argue that he's, you know, Putin's right-hand man right now more than ever. Um, so it's tough to know exactly what the situation is there. And the fact that he has now been appointed to this position of overall commander actually doesn't help us because it could be that Gerasimov is being set up to be the fall guy or maybe he's being rewarded for loyalty hmm. to Putin. It's difficult to say from the information available. But uh, in either case, there have been more and more whispers over the last week or so about a second mobilization for Russian forces. Probably in the next month or two, 150,000 new troops will be mobilized. And so this shakeup very well could be just about wanting Gerasimov's proven competence to be directing you know, those Russian forces that are about to multiply. Um, and I think it also demonstrates to the West that Russia is in this for the long haul. You know, we spoke last week about this shift that's happening now with Germany and France and the U.S. They're all sending infantry fighting vehicles. Germany and the U.S. are even sending Patriot missile batteries. Um, so all of that is kind of a sign to Putin that the West's support is not wavering the way he would mm -hmm. like it to. In fact, it's strengthening. And so now with this shakeup, Putin could be saying that despite that Western resolve, he is not shaken and he's committed for as long as it you know takes to win. It's really interesting to uh, try to piece together a narrative from these little bits of information that we're getting and to think that, uh, I mean, that this, this man could be actually... Uh, the idea that he could be actually set up to fail, uh, that seems like a very strange uh, kind of uh, a strategy that Putin would be employing in, in light of everything that he's been trying to accomplish there and the clear frustration that he has with his inability to bring this to a successful conclusion. Uh, how is the war going at this stage? Uh, where, where is Russia in, in relation to uh, Ukraine? And what sort of developments have happened lately? Yeah, well, it is... Uh Russia has slowed Ukraine's counteroffensives, so they're they're still being pushed back in some areas, but not as much as they were, say, back in September when they were losing, you know, hundreds of square miles in in a few weeks' time. Um, and there's actually been a really interesting report just this week from the head of Russia's Wagner private military group, a man named. Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, he started posting photos and messages on Telegram on Wednesday and Thursday claiming that his forces, the Wagner Group, had successfully captured the Ukrainian mining town of Solodar. That's the kind of thing that you would think that Putin and the Russian military would rejoice to hear. But instead, the Russian military actually denied Prigozhin's claims. They said maybe the Wagner Group has made some gains and maybe they'll conquer the town soon, but it hasn't happened yet. And then Ukraine, for its part, agreed with Russia and said that uh, the battle over Solodar is still very much undecided. So it's a strange bit of dissent there among the Russians, but there has been quite a lot of serious um, you know, power struggle underway between the Russian military and the Wagner group. So this, this power struggle might be intensifying, and it may actually be related to Putin's very sudden decision to oust Surovikin, hmm. you know, General Armageddon, and to put Gerasimov instead in charge. Gerasimov is very much a product of the Russian military establishment, and he has its staunch backing. But Surovikin, on the other hand, who has just been demoted, he has the backing of 
Prigojin and the Wagner Group. Hmm. So it's hard to say exactly what's going on here, but but it looks like some uh, political differences are deepening with this power struggle between the military and the Wagner Group. But in either case, though, if Russia can win the city of Solodar, then Ukrainian positions in nearby Bakhmut will uh, become much more vulnerable. And, and that could be a big turning point for the war, because Bakhmut, uh, as we've talked about, is just such an important place for Ukrainian uh, logistics. It's a big hub for mm. all of that. So can you just give our listeners a, an overview of what we expect to happen here in the long term based on biblical prophecy? Sure, yes. Uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, he wrote an article um, just, I think, the day after this full, full-scale full war began. Um, it's called Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine. And it was actually one of the most popular articles on our website last year, 7th, I believe. And he wrote in there about how Putin's aggression is something that he's been specifically warning about for close to two decades now. One part of that article says, I've been warning for years that Vladimir Putin would be responsible for violent conquests and would set in motion some astonishing and historic events. And then he goes on to explain that the reason why he's been issuing all those warnings about Putin is because of Bible prophecy. And one of the main ones that he talks about is Ezekiel 38 which is uh, a chapter largely about a man called the Prince of Rosh, or the Prince of Russia, which Mr. Fleury identifies as Vladimir Putin. And, and the prophecies show that Putin will go on from this war to fight bigger wars. Um, so when we look at Russia's war and the city of you know, Solodar and General Armageddon and Valery Gerasimov and everything else, I just think it's uh, really important to keep in mind this kind of high-altitude uh, view of it all. So this, this article really has a lot of ongoing relevance, and I would recommend it to any listener who would like to understand the, the war in that big-picture context. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. A couple of law enforcement interventions in Europe this week have many concerned that Iran is ramping up its terrorist activity against Western nations. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes. So first of all, in Germany, we got news on Sunday where the German police arrested two Iranian brothers who were uh, suspected of plotting to carry out a biological terrorist attack and... uh, They'd been arrested after a tip-off from the United States. So biological attack, obviously pretty concerning. Then the next day, uh, or right around the same time, we got news that the UK had discovered something potentially even more concerning. This uh, There was an incident on December 29th that was then only published this week where uh, Heathrow Airport authorities discovered somebody trying to bring in radioactive material to the UK, uh, they was it was some kind of uh, low-grade uranium, so something that was unsuitable for making you know, your typical nuclear bomb. But there's speculation that this could have been used, or the aim could have been to create a dirty bomb, something that's a conventional explosive, but it spreads radioactive particles around, potentially makes these radioactive particles into dust, so people are breathing them in. And you're, uh, you're potentially set sp- spreading cancer, certainly spreading a, a huge amount of fear uh, across a, a wide area and then having an incredibly expensive cleanup. So something that is much easier to make than a nuclear bomb, much kind of more low tech, but something with potentially devastating effects. And this was being shipped 
from ultimately from Pakistan uh, via an, an, some kind of Oman intermediary. And the recipient was an Iranian national. How much information is available about this uh, this uh, a supposedly uh, radiological weapon in uh, in the UK? Was this actually a dirty bomber? What's the evidence to suggest that? So we don't have much. What we do know is that they were caught trying to bring in radioactive material into the UK. And that's it. So there is the potential. Some are talking about, well, maybe this there's an innocent explanation. Maybe this is just some big mistake rather than uh, terrorism. But uh, I thought the Telegraph had some good points where they they wrote, you know, key questions still remain. Why was this company forking out to ship scrap metal via air? Something that is almost unheard of across the industry because it is so expensive. And why was it sent to an Iranian business? You know, sending scrap metal from Pakistan to the UK via air, you know, it's, it's very hard to think of any kind of innocent explanation mm. for that. Mm-hmm. And then they went on to interview uh, a retired Colonel Hamish de Breton Gordon. He used to be the commander of the UK and NATO uh, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear forces. So a pretty credible expert. Uh, and what he said is the fact that it was destined for an Iranian company really does raise the specter of was this a sample? That's an interesting possibility. So maybe this is not uh, the bomb or the, the material to make a bomb, but this is, well, we can get you a lot more of this mm-hmm. to make make even more. Uh, he went on to say, Iran supports global terror. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they have their fingerprints all over this. Why would you ship scrap metal on an airplane? Imagine the cost. It would be phenomenal. And then he said, there is no good reason to put uranium in the post, but there are a lot of bad reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, we, don't, we also don't know where this is coming from. That's another interesting point, I think, to think about that somewhere in the wild there is radioactive material floating around uh, and that somebody was buying this up and potentially trying to ship it to the uk this telegraph article speculates that maybe what's been happening is uh, american forces use depleted uranium shells Uh, i wouldn't be i think british forces it's a fairly regular thing uranium is a very dense metal Uh, it's very good for armor piercing Potentially, there are people now going around Afghanistan collecting up all of these used shell casings and all of these used shells and things like that uh, and gathering together the the uranium to create something that this article talks about. There are probably better things that you could make or more lethal things you could make a dirty bomb out of, but certainly something that would be a a pretty easy and plausible threat. So we don't know for sure that this was a bomb or that this was designed to make a bomb, but it is very hard to think of any innocent explanations for this. So the officials and analysts that are looking at this and saying uh, this really does point the finger at Iran and the potential for them to be ramping up uh, terrorist activity. Maybe you can just put this in the context of Iran's other activities, why this would be such a concern with Iran, what its track record is, and uh, just the context of activities like this. Yeah, there's Iran has a very strong, a huge track record of spreading terrorism across the Middle East. Uh, you know, they sponsor all kinds of terrorist groups around the world, most notably Hezbollah, but uh, all kinds of other groups. Uh, they are just a key player in, in terrorism in this area. One thing we haven't seen a huge amount until the last few years is Iranian terrorism in Europe. Uh, now that has been changing. 
And I think this is a sign that this could be changing even further, especially this connection with Germany, where you've got two Iranian nationals arrested in terms of uh, uh, biological, another form of WMD attack. You go back to the breakup of Yugoslavia, something we were talking about a few weeks ago. In the breakup of Yugoslavia, Germany and Iran were on the same side. Germany's intelligence services were looking for ways to funnel weapons to the Croats. Iranian intelligence services were looking for ways to smuggle weapons to the Muslim Albanians. Uh, the two of them were working together. The two of them formed a working relationship. And out of this grew this relatively cozy relationship between Germany and uh, Iranian uh, terrorist groups where they could kind of operate with relative freedom in Germany as long as they weren't carrying out attacks on European soil. And I think what you've seen over the past three, four, five years is this relationship is completely broken down. Uh, and this happened with Iran taking out dissidents within Europe, uh, Iranian dissidents within Europe in very dangerous circumstances. And now we've got two individuals with potential, two groups with potential ties to Iran plotting not just your average terrorist attack, but potentially involved in some of the most scary types and widespread types of terrorist attacks, biological, chemical weapons, the types of attacks that are very hard to pull off but if you've got ties to the Iranian government, you have the resources to pull that off. Uh, so you've got to think that this could mark a huge change or a continuation of this big change in how Europe views Iran's terrorist activities. It seems like it represents a shift for Iran in moving their attention more onto Europe and then a shift for Europe in terms of taking that Iranian threat a lot more seriously. Now, we very closely track and scrutinize European uh, attitude toward Iran because of uh, the indication in biblical prophecy of a clash between these two, a spectacular clash. And those signs really have been increasing, as you mentioned, in the last few years. The fact that you have uh, European officials that are uh, increasingly vigilant and concerned about what is happening in Iran Describe the uh, prophetic reasons for why this is so critical. So this is one of the core prophecies that we just keep on coming back to in um, Daniel chapter 11. It outlines uh, prophecies for the time of the end. Uh, it's prophecies that lead right into God's intervention in world events. And uh, there's a wonderfully inspiring kind of conclusion to these prophecies in Daniel chapter 12, but they describe a big clash between two powers, the king of the South, which is radical Islam led by Iran, and then the king of the North, this European power. And uh, so these, this clash between these two are just so central to end time events. So much end time prophecy revolves around them. It gets so much rolling. Uh, and this is what you see building, where it talks about this king of the south uh, being pushy, being aggressive. You know, that word push, it's kind of more referring to an animal attacking with its horn. Uh, it's, a, it's a violent, uh, violent attack. And then it talks about this king of the north responding like a whirlwind, responding with a furious, violent assault in the other direction. And you see this dynamic already now in Iranian and European relations. You see Daniel 11 building uh, and that's what this is really all about. We're going to see more and more pushing from Iran. And ultimately, this is going to lead to an explosive response coming from Europe. And uh, that's just going to be a key catalyst for then all kinds of further uh, end time events, including some wonderfully inspiring ones. Well, we do have uh, 
updates on thetrumpet.com on each of these events that uh, took place in Europe this week. German police arrest two suspected Iranian terrorists and a suspected Iranian WMD plot investigated in Britain. We'll link to both of those in the show notes. And if you want more information about this specific prophecy, we have a trend article that discusses this clash of civilizations between Iran and Europe. We'll link to that as well. Thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. The Twitter files exposes keep coming. We're learning more and more about how government agencies exercised illegal power over supposedly this supposedly private social media giant. To learn the latest, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the most recent Twitter file release is Twitter Files Part 14. Again, a release by journalist Matt Taibbi. Uh, and uh, this one's basically a smoking gun showing that the government deliberately fabricated the Russia collusion narrative behind the Steele dossier. Uh, if you'll remember back, <laughs> if you go back a few years, when President Trump was first taking office in 2016, you had this this phony dossier about all his uh, illicit connections to Russia that the government had used to launch the, the Robert Mueller investigation to try to impeach him and remove him uh, from office. And, uh, and that, that campaign to move, get Trump out of office made quite a bit of headway until something uh, rather miraculous happened on January 16th, 2018, when uh, Congressman Devin Nunes uh, released uh, a memo basically detailing all the corruption that was going on. And I guess actually technically that memo was released on January 18th, 2018, released to Congress, but what it means he would have been putting the finishing touches and actually like typing it up and all that on the 16th and the 17th. And so that, that memo really, um, really exposed what the left was trying to do for those who are, who were going to pay attention to it. A lot of people didn't pay attention to it. Uh, but now with this, uh, this latest Twitter files, we've actually got like the internal emails from Twitter uh, and the, the government at the time basically saying where, where Twitter officials uh, were even admitting. Uh, well, here, here's a statement from the report. It says Twitter officials were aghast finding no evidence of Russian influence. And, and that comes from an email in which Twitter executives are actually talking to Representative Adam Schiff uh, and Diane Feinstein. Uh, and then they added that the social media platform has not identified any significant activity connected to Russia with respect to tweets posting original content on this. And so uh, Adam Schiff and Diane Feinstein and, and others, I mean, they're, they're trying to use this investigation against Donald Trump, where at the time, they're, the, the, even the Twitter officials are saying it's like, it was like, we've checked the accounts and uh, th th there's no evidence like Russian bots or anything like that had a connection to mm -hmm. this election. And so it all turned out to really be, be a, a big nothing burger, which you would have known if you'd gone through the, um, the Nunes memo. But this is really just further collaboration of how little evidence uh, of Russia collusion they needed to, uh, to basically have the FBI uh, move right in and make Twitter uh, subsidiary. Yeah. Um, if um, how little evidence, meaning absolutely no evidence. Right. <laughs> and you go back and you look at some of the statements from, uh, you know, Adam Schiff and some of these officials. And you look back at the uh, media reports uh, in light of these revelations. And it's just flat 
out lies. They know that what they're saying is absolutely false. And you have these Twitter officials that they're kind of dumbfounded that these officials are saying it. And yet they go along with it because fundamentally they agree with the the uh, the underpinning of what these people are trying to do. Right. You're right. I mean, the uh, it's been uh, and we've made that point um, on this program before that these uh these Twitter files here you're getting um here you're getting some stuff about what was going on about 2017 and 2018 they still aren't going back before um <laughs> before 2017 to figure out how the FBI got so much influence with Twitter uh, in the first place you know, obviously the Obama administration was making deep inroads into into Twitter uh, long before the 2016 presidential campaign uh but then once they'd actually gotten um they'd gotten inside there they were uh uh able to do quite a lot of damage that uh, began to be revealed around january 16th 2018 and then uh has just continued now with the twitter files <laughs> is just coming like an avalanche right so you uh, are talking specifically about the twitter files number 14 the, also this this week basically we had 11 12 and 13 as well can you give us a, a bit of a summary of what else uh has been uncovered specifically yeah, the 11 12 and 13 that was actually the topic of uh, our executive editor mr stephen flurry's uh trumpet brief this week where it's titled twitter files how the fbi uh hacked into twitter and uh, again uh just showing how basically in the the wake of the 2016 election uh twitter used the excuse that russia was uh or the government used the excuse that russia was spreading misinformation via social media companies uh to be able to come in and uh basically just take it uh take it over yeah there's a quote actually from an article by lee smith who's one of the better investigative journalists in america that talks about uh really how little bill barr did to expose any of this corruption and how much better elon musk has done Mm -hmm. at bringing this to the the forefront but he's got a pretty powerful statement about just what's at stake with this twitter um with this government infiltration of twitter he says, it seems Barr's contempt for the president he served blinded him, along with the class of people in which he belongs, Democrats and Republicans alike, to an essential fact. The whole of society industry designed to shape elections and censor, propagandize, and spy on Americans was never simply a weapon to harm Donald Trump. It was, re- it was designed to replace the republic. Uh, and so this is really a... <laughs> a coup d'etat to use misinformation uh, to transform America from being a constitutional democracy uh, into being like this huge uh, uh, technocracy where you've got like these this rule of experts where uh, they know what's best for you and you have to do what they say no matter what. It's pretty interesting to see this back and forth behind the scenes between these government officials and Twitter uh, over the Nunes memo, uh, Gerald Flurry drew a lot of attention to that memo when that came out, uh, and it really was a, a turning point. Yeah, at the time, uh, it just goes back from our April 2018 Trumpet print edition. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, has an article entitled, Nunes Memo Exposes Unseen Threat to America. Uh, and that goes through um, 
the spiritual dimension about like this evil spiritual force trying to tear apart uh, America and the uh, the role that um, the Nunes memo really had in uh, launching this campaign against Donald Trump. And so uh, we can definitely put that in the show notes. It's a, it's a good uh, resource to review right now because this Twitter files part uh, 14 is um, really adding more information to that and, uh, and, showing, um, and showing that basically everything it says <laughs> uh, about um, what the government was trying to do to Donald Trump was uh, absolutely correct. Well, we'll link to that as well as uh, Stephen Flurry's article from this week, Twitter Files, How the FBI Hacked Twitter. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. The new conservative government of Israel made another move this week, sure to rankle leftists and opponents of Benjamin Netanyahu to learn what it was. We'll turn to Mihailo Zekic. Yes, well, on Sunday, the Israeli government outlawed the flying of Palestinian flags in public areas as per order from the new national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Now, like with anything else happening with this new government, a lot of uh, people um, on certain parts of the political spectrum uh, don't like this, thinking that it's another sign that the new Israeli government is going down an extremist uh, direction. Um, But this actually isn't that different from some of the things that are happening under the previous Israeli governments under uh, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. Uh, This obviously institutionalizes it a little bit more. What's interesting is Ben Gavir specifically equated flying the flag, the Palestinian flag, with supporting a terrorist organization, which considering one half of the Palestinian territories is controlled by Yasser Arafat's old party, and the other half is controlled by Iran-backed Hamas, uh, you can... It's not uh, that big of a stretch. Yeah, it's not that big of a stretch. Um, Of course, for all those that think that a two-state solution is a given dividing Jerusalem down the middle, etc., they're all upset. This current Israeli government shows no sign that it's going to go down that route anyway, so it shouldn't be that surprising. Um, Some actual Palestinians, there was some protests organized going on, but the organizer of the protests actually specifically said, don't fly the flag, which I think is interesting in that it's showing that these protesters on the ground, the organizers, are taking these kinds of laws seriously. Usually Hmm. with these kinds of situations, a lot of the protesters would like to toe the line and try and flout the law. But it shows that they're, in this case with the new government, they're taking their decrees pretty seriously. And like what we covered last week in last week's program about Itamar Ben-Gavir visiting the Temple Mount and whatnot, you're starting to see a bit of a backbone in the government in Jerusalem that wasn't there with the previous administrations regarding Palestinian relations, regarding Arab relations within Israel. And with, which is also why everybody in the international community is so angry, because... Mm-hmm. This Israeli government is showing that it's not going to back down from its policies, it's not going to back down from controlling Jerusalem, from being tough on uh, jihadism, from terrorism. And this event that happened Sunday is another demonstration of that. Yeah, I, I, Benjamin Netanyahu has always been strong, but it does seem like uh, with the majority that he has in the Knesset, the stronger than any that he's ever enjoyed while he's been in power, that he, he does have a, a certain... Uh, a willingness to to extra 
extra pep in his step, I guess, and, and a willingness to defy uh, opposition over uh, an issue like this. Well, not just that, but also some of the parties, as we've mentioned before on this program, are new to Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition. They're considered further right than his normal coalition partners. Um, people like Itamar Ben-Gavir or Bezalel Smoldrich, they're used to being demonized by the left, mm-hmm. uh, including within Israel. They don't really have any popularity points to lose, and they know that they have a lot of support from the people on the ground. So they're basically saying, we're just fulfilling our mandate to the people. Uh, we don't care about what you think. Uh, we don't really take your opinions that seriously anyway. You haven't shown us any help, uh, any any realistic um aid to us in this situation so we're just going to do what we're going to do and we don't really care about it and for benjamin netanyahu's part a this these kinds of things are part of his coalition negotiations maybe Mm -hmm. not this uh, particular move but again being tough on uh on terrorism being uh tougher on uh, arab arab rioters and again these kinds of things benjamin netanyahu has been trying to implement for a long time but he hasn't been able to get away with it but now that he has these new coalition partners, he could say, we're just fulfilling our coalition agreements, etc. Hmm. And from this way, he actually comes in through a position of strength by not being able to, say, take all the blame for it, uh, etc. Hmm. It's very interesting. So to it, it, you can't help but look at this, and it's kind of refreshing to see uh, Israel behaving this way. But if you could put this in the context of what we expect to happen prophetically and how this might play out. Well, the previous government in Jerusalem under Yair Lapid, a centrist, center-left government, he previously said that he wanted to settle the Palestinian issue and fulfill the two-state solution. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu and his government uh, seem to certainly not uh, look at it that way. But under Lapid and some of these other figures that that were running the government until recently, you could have potentially seen a two-state solution happen. You could have potentially seen Israel give ground to the Arabs, to the Palestinians. Who knows? Perhaps even give East Jerusalem to the Arabs. Um, But under Netanyahu and his current coalition, that's not going to be the case. Uh, That was was never the case when Benjamin Netanyahu was in his uh, 15 prior years in office, and especially with his new coalition partners, that's definitely not going to be the case now. There's a prophecy we often go to in analyzing what's going on in Jerusalem. That's in Zechariah 14, which talks about the events leading up to the Great Tribulation, the Day of the Lord, and the Second Coming of Christ. And it starts off, the order's reversed in the prophecy, but the starting event is half the city being taken captive. And our editor-in-chief has always pointed to that being an Arab takeover of East Jerusalem, the part of Jerusalem where all the holy sites are, the part that the Arabs are most interested in, and it's a violent takeover. It's not being handed over through negotiations or anything like that. The Arabs take it to themselves, they take up arms, and they violently take over half the city. Now, the international community has been pressuring Israel to give up East Jerusalem for a long time, and there have been governments in Israel that have uh, thought about that seriously before. Um, but this prophecy suggests that whoever is in power in Israel at the time will not be one of those governments. It will be somebody that's not going to give up Jerusalem d- through negotiations. Um, the only way it's going to lose East Jerusalem is if it's forced to lose it through th- through military means. Mm-hmm. And the Palestinians, they can 
see that Netanyahu is not going to give up Jerusalem. He's not going to give them what they want. And so we can see the fulfillment, or not the fulfillment, sorry, but the progression towards the fulfillment of the Palestinians starting to take these kinds of matters into their own hands. Hmm. Well, that prophecy is explained in detail in our editor-in-chief's booklet, Jerusalem in Prophecy. You can find that in our literature library at thetrumpet.com. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. Thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, China trying to win friends in the West, as well as stories from Germany and Lebanon and a formerly banned Twitter account reinstated that could have significant political implications for America. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. China's economy has been hit hard by COVID lockdowns and other ripple effects of the virus. It's become politically isolated from many Western nations. President Xi Jinping is taking steps to reverse these trends. To learn how, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, there has been an interesting shift from the leadership of China just over the last couple of weeks. The uh, Financial Times actually went so far on Monday as to call this a, quote, fundamental reset in Xi Jinping's foreign and economic policies, end quote. So that's a, you know, that's a bold statement. But what we're seeing from Xi Jinping is apparently a realization that rabid, foaming-at-the-mouth hyper-nationalism may not be a good look for China on the international stage. Um, that has been the Chinese approach over the last few years, just this brazen, ultra-nationalist, profoundly confrontational approach to other nations. The Chinese have even proudly called this wolf-warrior diplomacy. It's this just kind of relentless insistence that it's now China's turn to rule the world, Mm -hmm. and anybody who stands in the way will suffer China's wrath. Um, That's also a big part of what makes China defiantly support Russia's war on Ukraine, even while the rest of the civilized world opposes it. Um, So that's the China that we've all come to know and be alarmed by over the last couple of years. And that's the China that has prompted an exodus of Western companies from its territory and has caused them to start setting up factories instead in, you know, India, Taiwan, Vietnam, Mexico, anywhere but China, basically. But now Xi Jinping is looking around at the battered Chinese economy. As you said in the introduction there, his zero COVID lockdowns, of course, exacerbated things. Um, And now that those are lifted, the COVID virus itself may be doing even more damage to China, at least in the short term. And that's all on top of this rapid decoupling from China that the West is in the midst of. That's on top of the Biden administration's ban on exporting semiconductors to China. That was a, a just a major blow. All of that has pulverized the Chinese economy. So Xi Jinping seems to have woken up a week or two, two ago and said, this is not working. The confrontational approach doesn't seem to be working. So he just demoted who was probably the most rabid wolf warrior, Zhao Lijian, uh, Zhao Lijian had been the foreign ministry spokesman, and now he's demoted to a really obscure post. That guy was the voice of China on the international stage, and his voice was one of just ultra-nationalistic contempt for other nations. So sidelining him was significant. And, uh, and it shows that Xi Jinping knows that his confrontational approach has failed and that he's now really trying to win back partners. You know, a couple of things that strike me about this is uh, you say that, you know, Xi Jinping realizes the way that he was doing things wasn't working. And yet it's quite remarkable how 
how far they got and how well it did work in so many ways. Like we we've seen China really rise to uh, unprecedented prominence in a way that uh, you never would have expected 30, 40 years ago uh, from from this nation. The fact that it's taking a, a different PR approach, basically, it seems like there are there would be a whole lot of interest among Western nations to engage with China in a way that really would be pretty robust. And that if China takes uh, a softer uh, approach, that uh, you would probably get quite a lot of attra- uh, attraction among uh, Western nations to this. It's a very good point. Yeah, China's rise has been described as a miracle, you know, over the last few decades. Um, but it has slowed a great deal mm-hmm. just in, in the last four or five years under Xi Jinping as he has uh, continued to isolate himself in the upper echelons of the CCP. He's surrounded now entirely with sycophants and he, he you know, doesn't really know how to run the country in a way that um, that can revitalize the economy. Um But I think one really interesting part of this is that right now he's also working to portray China as distancing itself from Russia. So the Financial Times quotes some Chinese officials who spoke to them saying, well, one of them said Putin's war is insane. Some of the others said Russia is bound to lose it and to emerge as a minor power. They say China is now reevaluating its partnership with Russia, especially since that partnership lately comes with uh, just very little return on the investment and with great costs to China's economic ties with Europe. And America. I'll, I'll read one quote from this Financial Times piece. It says, For all the public professions of bilateral amity, in private, some Chinese officials express mistrust toward Putin himself. Five senior Chinese officials with knowledge of the issue have told the Financial Times at different times that Moscow did not inform Beijing of its intention to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine before Putin ordered the attack. Mm. And I think the fact that China never evacuated any of its diplomats from Kiev and other parts of Ukraine do corroborate that. Um, but in either case, Chinese diplomats now are trying to rehabilitate China's standing with Europe especially, mm-hmm. just by saying that they were unaware of the plan. Um, and, and it's part of Xi's attempt to win friends back. But if you look at the facts and figures, I just think we shouldn't be duped by these efforts. Right. In 2022, we saw across-the-board growth for Russia and China in trade. We saw significant joint military drills between the two. We saw more trade being conducted in renminbi, bypassing the dollar. Um, we saw a continuation of talks and just the general bromance between <laughs> Putin and, and Xi Jinping. So it's clear that whatever China says as it tries to sweet talk the Europeans, um, Xi Jinping remains loyal to his alliance with Putin. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. And I could still see uh, Europeans and other nations uh, taking the uh, this effort by China to uh, to rehabilitate its image with them, just going ahead and saying, OK, well, this, this gives us enough of a pretense to continue to do business with them. And looking at Bible prophecy, there's two things here that we can expect. One is this relationship between Russia and China to remain strong in spite of China's efforts, as you were just saying, to uh, distance itself from Russia. And the other is that it will China will continue to do business with and improve its relationships, especially trade relationship with Europe. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And already, I think these efforts are paying dividends. We saw um, a visit to Beijing by uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, mm. just a month or so ago, and then French President Emmanuel Macron and Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney are are planning to visit very soon. So it looks like this is working, and and it could uh, solidify that mart of nations prophecy that we talk about so often with Chinese European cooperation. We have an article called Asia Still Stands with Putin that uh, puts some of what we're seeing here in a prophetic context. We'll link to that in the show notes. We thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Jacques. In more Twitter news, one prominent scalp the Democrats claimed early in Donald Trump's presidency had been kicked off the social media platform. But this week, he was reinstated. To learn why this is significant, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, I was really pleased at the beginning of the week to find out that uh, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn had his Twitter account restored on the second anniversary of January 6, uh, 2021. Now, um, uh, American political consultant Roger Stone had kind of asked Elon Musk to do this, and uh, I guess the both of them must have... <laughs> Uh, a, l- a little bit of an ironic sense of humor in that they installed him back on Twitter on January 6th because that was <laughs> the date he was kicked off. Uh, and he was kicked off for suggesting that Donald Trump needed to use his last days in the presidency uh, to use military resources to seize control of the voting machines. He was kicked off Twitter for suggesting that President Donald Trump needed to use his last days in office to use military resources to seize control of the voting machines and investigate election fraud. And so they 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 kicked him off for that, and uh, he he spent the last couple years uh, really doing a lot of work. He's uh, he's worked with Sidney Powell. He's worked with uh, Mike Lindell. Um, doing uh, quite a bit uh, to expose the election fraud. And so uh, now having him back on Twitter, I'm finding him, uh, <laughs> he's only been back on for a week, and I'm finding him actually one of the best resources to actually find out what's going on uh, with the uh, election. I follow him on my <laughs> Uh, on my Twitter account, and I mean, he, he retweets things from like uh, accounts like Name Redacted that's showing how many CIA in, uh, agents have infiltrated the big tech agencies, um, and he's got other things about election fraud, and really, um, really doing a ton to expose that fraud uh, and then broadcast it to the American people, which um, you'll... <laughs> Uh, remember in the show notes we can put our editor-in-chief Mr. Joe Foy's article the Barack Obama mystery that really highlights the fact actually that's a chapter in his um, America Under Attack booklet now called Silencing a Critic uh, and that really shows how uh, Barack Obama told Donald Trump that he he thought the two most dangerous men to America were Michael Flynn and Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-un has nukes so he's like, what is, <laughs> like what does this guy have on him that he's just so terrified uh, and well we might find out because uh, he, he's mm. very educated very good with intelligence gathering techniques he's been working for uh, a good bit of years to expose this election fraud working with men um, like Mike Lindell and now, well, now he's back on Twitter, and he's he's got a platform to start talking um, to start talking with people. So we're we're really set up for um, 
some big dramatic fulfillments of Bible prophecy with Donald Trump coming back to office uh, in the in the near future. And that uh, that chapter from America Under Attack, Silencing a Critic, will really uh, highlight uh, why Michael Flynn's uh, important, uh, as well as many other prophecies in Second Kings fourteen and uh, Amos seven about uh, about the next Donald Trump term. Well, thank you very much. Silencing a critic. Good to be reminded of that chapter in America Under Attack. Also good to get a little insight into your personal Twitter feed. We appreciate that, Mr. Miller. A recent poll in Germany showed that not only do a majority of the citizens believe climate change is the greatest threat to humanity, but also that the biggest cause is capitalism. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, capitalism and specifically the United States capitalism, the Spiegel Europe's largest news magazine. They uh, they got uh, civvy polling to do a whole bunch of surveys back in December, and they basically found that uh, everyone blames America, uh, which is kind of ironic given that by far overwhelmingly the biggest polluter in Europe, especially if you break it down even per head, is Germany. And you've got a country that's shutting down its nuclear power stations, which has probably done more than just about anything else to reduce carbon emissions, if you're concerned about that kind of thing. Uh, and they're opening up coal-fired power stations to deal with gas shortages. They're now running their, all their electric guitars are being... F- electric guitars. Electric <laughs> cars. I guess their electric guitars would be as well, uh, are being fueled by coal, which is um, more polluting than if you're just driving a petrol car around. Uh so you've got a, a, a pretty hypocritical Germany, but it's a, a Germany that is blaming the United States. And I think this is this their article. They talked about um, you know did Marx get it right and climate change being just one way of showing well we need a more socialist world and that actually maybe we need to revive Karl Marx. And I think this is. Um, you know, it's interesting. You've got a couple of changes. Uh, James Dellingpole, or trends here. James Dellingpole wrote a book a while ago called Watermelons. You know, talking about how the green movement—it's green on the outside, it's red on the inside. Mm-hmm. It's it's a disguise for socialists, but they're actually uh, they're actually water they're actually watermelons just pretending to be environmentalists. Mm-hmm. They're socialists pretending to be environmentalists. So I think you see that, but I think you really do see how this has been weaponized against the United States, and I think that's something we see more and more, where objectively. If there are bigger polluters, there's China or there's all these other countries. Right. But climate change has become a stick to beat the United States with mm-hmm. uh, in so many different areas. Whether And you know, the biggest beater of the United States are people like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and the radical left. You know, it's Americans within, and it's a potent tool for those people with their own agendas to, to harm the United States. But it's also a tool that's being picked up on now by more other countries, including Germany. Uh, and it's something that Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry goes through in great detail in his article, The Deadly Climate Change Delusion. Yeah, I, I also can't help but uh, be reminded of uh, Pope Francis making similar arguments and the fact that you have the, this kind of confluence of uh, ideological 
ideas here between the Pope and these uh, the German public is interesting from a prophetic standpoint. Well, we will certainly uh, link to that article from Gerald Flurry. We have a, a, a small article, an update on thetrumpet.com. Germans blame the climate apocalypse on America that we'll link to as well. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. Final story from Lebanon today. An investigation into the Beirut blast of August 2020 still has not yielded results, and there are people deeply frustrated over the delay. This week, a protest over the matter turned ugly. To learn about this, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekic. Well, on this uh, program, we often talk about... uh It's a news program, of course, so we talk about events that happened. In this case, it was also about an event that didn't happen. It's uh, two years in the making and still hasn't happened. As you mentioned, uh, there haven't been any results for the investigation of to what caused the infamous Beirut blast from 2020. It was, uh, many of our listeners probably remember it happened in the port of Beirut. Over 200 died. Uh, over 7,000 were injured after um, an explosive substance in the port. Uh, had an accident and blew up and a lot of people are getting upset with the government dragging their feet there is a uh, suspicion that hezbollah was implicated somehow the terrorist group that controls that or that is in the lebanese government and uh, that they're trying to cover up their tracks and so on tuesday uh, protesters attacked uh, lebanon's justice palace in beirut originally there were peaceful protests but then, like you said, they turned ugly. They breached the gate of the compound. People were clashing with riot police. They smashed windows. And the the protests continued for days afterwards. Um, the main uh, focus of the protests was Judge Tarek Bitar, who is the man the Lebanese government put in to examine the evidence. Now, I say that the government asked him to examine the evidence. But again, because the government may be implicated in whatever happened, then the government has done everything they could to try and stop Bitar from progressing. Um, they've, uh, through their manipulations, through their involvement, they've actually stopped uh, Bitar from laying charges to ev- anybody and even calling witnesses in to testify. Um, well, I shouldn't say he hasn't done any progress, but the government, in any sense, has tried to really slow him down. Many of the protesters that were involved in these latest incidents were actually relatives of those who were killed and uh they were saying uh, telling reporters things like uh, this still like my family died it's been two years i want an answer and nobody's been giving them answers so you're starting to see even though this was over two years ago you still see it's still fresh in the minds of people and people want something done about that and they're the government's obviously not giving into them at this point and you're starting to see people on the street in lebanon get really angry about that and start to take matters into their own hands so the unrest the dissatisfaction the anger of the lebanese people against their government these are important trends that could play into uh, biblical prophecy can you explain how well, another uh, a prophecy we go to quite often when looking at countries like Lebanon is Psalm 83, which talks about an alliance of Arab countries aligning with Assyria or Germany. And one and two of those countries mentioned in Psalm 83 are two peoples are Gibal and Tyre, which correspond to the territory of Lebanon today. Hezbollah right now control uh, controls uh, Lebanon. They're an Iranian puppet. They're part of the radical terrorist bloc. 
We expect Lebanon to shift gears and um, leave Iran's block and join Europe's block. And with events like the Beirut blast and the government's response or lack of to it, we're seeing the Lebanese public get, just get more and more antsy against the Hezbollah government. Our editor-in-chief said in a 2014 television program that we can expect civil war in Lebanon soon, and we can expect pro-European forces to come out of that. And this latest uh, incident just shows how uh, volatile the temperature is getting in Lebanon and how uh, the Lebanese people can only take so much before they take to the streets and start taking matters into their own hands. Well, if you want to understand more about that prophecy for Lebanon, we will link to a few articles in our show notes, including that uh, that article from our editor-in-chief back in 2018 after the Beirut blast, why we told you to watch Lebanon. Go check it out. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. And thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and Jesse Hester for production. I'll leave you with the words of Ayn Rand. Devotion to the truth is the hallmark of morality. There is no greater, nobler, more heroic form of devotion than the act of a man who assumes the responsibility of thinking. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world. 